bring you greetings from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make every great path straight. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In this broadcast, we shall be concluding our discussion on the global theme, Back to Basics. By the grace of God, we would be ending this series. In this broadcast, we began this series by looking at the story that I saw, a cartoon of, of a football team that had played so badly that the next day at training, the coach held up a soccer ball and said to them, this is a ball. It is round. It's made of leather and air is pumped into it so that it can bounce. You kick the ball with your foot, not with your hands. The only person who is permitted to touch the ball with a hand is a goalkeeper and that is within the 18-yard box where the goalpost is. The ball is to be kicked into the opponent's goalpost, not into your goalpost. That gives you an idea of how poorly that team had performed. And so we apply that allegory to Christianity and we began to look at the need for us to go back to basics. And let me read Hebrews chapter 5 from verse 12 to 14 and we'll see how it all ties in. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So we have a situation where by the time certain people are to be teaching others, they still need to be taught the basics of Christianity. And we differentiated between two groups of people who we find attending church meetings. We spoke about disciples and we spoke about members. Disciples are people who are born again, daily sanctified, and are diligent followers of the teaching and the lifestyle of the Lord Jesus Christ. They got born again because they were convinced and convicted in their hearts of their sinfulness and their need for salvation as a result. And then they confessed the Lord Jesus Christ and became saved. Members, on the other hand, are people who just go to these church meetings. They don't have to be born again. They don't even understand what's called sanctification, even if they were born again. All the heads of those meetings are interested in is that people are showing up. It doesn't matter what lifestyle they are living. They are naturally expected to be financial members. They are expected to be committed to whatever it is that a pastor or the leader of that assembly wants them to do. They actually don't have to follow Jesus as long as they follow what their papa or general overseer or bishop or pastor tells them to do. Whether it is scriptural or not is immaterial. So we noted that the Lord's command when he sent his disciples out was that they should go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. He never told them to go and make members. He said they should make disciples and teach them everything that he had commanded. So a disciple is not just somebody who is born again and sanctified, who is following the teachings of Lord Jesus Christ, but he is taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is taught about what the Lord Jesus Christ wants him to be taught, not what the pastor wants them to hear. So with this distinction, we made it clear that disciples must start at the point of the foundational doctrines of Christ. So in Hebrews 5, 12 to 14 that we read, we saw people who ought to have been teaching, but they were not teaching. They were babes. They were carnal. They did not have an understanding of the fundamentals, the foundational doctrines of Christianity. And so we went on to look at this 
in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Say, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And I'll take verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. So this became the global scripture text that we used in discussing the foundational doctrines of Christ. Six of them are mentioned there, repentance from dead works. This is to be distinguished from repentance from sin. After you have repented of sin and you come into Christ, you must now be taught that you don't do things the way you like. You do only what God wants you to do. So you repent of dead works. Dead works are activities that God did not sanction, that God does not support, that God has not ordained, that God has not asked you to do. So you cannot say that you are a Christian and the only person you are listening to is your pastor. And that pastor is not teaching you anything that God has asked him to teach you. You must know God for yourself. And then the second thing is that you must have faith toward God, not towards a man, not towards a building, not towards a denomination, not towards a creed, but faith towards God himself. And then there are teachings that you must go through, the teachings on baptisms, the teachings on laying on of hands, the teachings on resurrection of the dead and teachings of eternal judgment. We've done all of this under this global theme, back to basics. So we will not be reinventing the wheel and going over them. The bottom line is that in verse 1 of Hebrews 6 says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. So, you see that the foundational doctrines are but a beginning. They're not the end. The goal is to move on to perfection or to move on to maturity so that we are no longer to be babes or children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine which the trickery and the evil in men have devised to lure people and draw them away from God. Today in Nigeria, children are donning academic gowns. And I mean children as uh, like nursery school children. They say they are graduating from nursery school. Then primary school children are graduating from primary school. And secondary school children are graduating from secondary school. So they don academic gowns at the end of their education. They give the impression that that is all they need to have. But there is more than nursery, primary, and secondary education. There is university education. In fact, without a university degree in Nigeria, the simple truth is there's very little you can do. You need to have that basic education. So just because they put upon you an academic gown to say that you have graduated does not mean that you have actually finished your education. It's the same thing here. The fact that we have gone through the foundational doctrines does not mean that we have ended all that you need to know. But it is the basic things that you need to know. For example, when children start nursery, they teach them the alphabets. Then, at some point in time, they teach them two-letter and three-letter words. O-N, on, I-N, in, I-T, it, and things like that. It is from teaching them these two-letter and three-letter words that they are now teaching them how to form sentences. They've not gone into the nitty-gritty of how the sentences are to be formed. They just allow them to form sentences. Later on, as they get into primary school and possibly secondary school, they are now taught about tenses. They are taught about articles and subjects. They are taught about how to form sentences and how to make the sentences coherent and for people to be able to comprehend. But the basic was alphabets, two-letter words, three-letter words. The same thing with numbers. We are taught how to count from one to ten. And then later from 1 to 20, and then to 1 to 100, and so on and so forth. The essence of all of this is so that they can teach us arithmetic. How to add 1 and 1 is 2, 2 and 2 is 4. Some people feel that, oh, we don't need them. But these are the basic things that you need in life. 
even if you don't go to school and you are in business or one thing or other, you are going to need those additions. You would need to be able to communicate with people. So you need English and you need mathematics. And that's why in Nigeria, for example, and I believe as in most countries, there is a minimum requirement to have before you can even say you are going in for a university degree. Regardless of what course you want to study, even if the course does not require mathematics, you must have a credit in mathematics and in English, whatever the course is, you must have mathematics and English. Why? Because there's nothing you are going to do, at least in our own dispensation, that you would not need to add or subtract or multiply or divide. You're going to need mathematics. You're also going to need to be able to speak and communicate in English fluently as best as possible. So it's not about putting on an academic gown after secondary school and saying, oh, I've graduated. No. In fact, in Nigeria, a diploma will not do. You need to have a first degree. So if we apply this to Christianity, we are saying that there is more to Christianity than knowing the elementary principles of Christ. There is more to Christianity than just having this principle. But these principles are nonetheless essential. We are not rubbishing it. The Bible does not rubbish them. It says that we shouldn't be going over these elementary principles every time. We need to lay the foundation once and for all. And then we must proceed to maturity. Because without these foundational doctrines, you can't even get into maturity. Every time you try to get to maturity, the need for these foundational doctrines will drag you back. So you need to have it firmly established. You need to have it firmly in place. So in Christendom, the end of the study of foundational doctrines or the elementary principles of Christ is only the beginning of the journey to perfection or maturity. So as we prepare to move on to perfection, I want to share with us the custom of Jews when it comes to the issue of wedding and how it is applicable to the New Testament Christian. In Jewish custom, marriage is arranged among the parents. The father of the groom goes to the parents of the bride and asks her hand in marriage. This was what happened in Genesis chapter 25 when Abraham called his servant to go to Haran where his brother was staying and bring from there a wife for his son Isaac. And he told him, make sure that you don't let Isaac marry from this place. Go to my brother's place and bring a wife from there. And if the woman will not want to follow you, you are free from the vow that I've made you to take. But please, on no account, are you to let my son marry a wife from this place, which was Canaan. So marriage was something that parents arranged. If we bring it to Christianity, the marriage between the church and the Lord Jesus Christ is something the father orchestrated himself, which is why the Lord Jesus Christ said, unless the father draws a man, he cannot come to Christ. So it is the father that chooses who comes to Christ. It is the father that said, my son, I want you to marry the church. So that's how marriage is done. When we talk of the church, which is the body or the summation of all Christians, being married to Christ, we are speaking of the members that make up the body of Christ, which is the church, being brought into union with Christ. And that is orchestrated by the Father. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is also the Father of all flesh. So he chooses those who will come, and in selecting them, he calls them, and they have to respond. Some have responded, some have not responded. Some may never respond. Some are yet to respond. A time is going to come when there will be a pegging and that will be the end of that call and the church will be raptured. We've discussed some of this when we're discussing resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Then, when the parents have agreed to the union between the son of this family 
and the daughter of the other family, there is what is called a betrothal of the lady to the groom. We find that in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 to 25 when the Bible speaks about Mary who became the mother of Jesus being betrothed to Joseph. Now betrothal is not the same as a marriage. Betrothal simply means that this person is spoken for by this man. It is going to culminate in a marriage. If the girl who has been thus betrothed should engage in fornication, she can be stoned to death. Which was why when Joseph got wind that Mary was pregnant, he began to look for a way, because he was a good man, he was not bitter about it, to give her a soft landing so that she would not be stoned to death and she would still be safe. It was while he was thinking of the best way to do it that the Lord came to him by an angel and told him what she is carrying is from the Lord. Don't throw her away. Take her in. And he did. And the Bible says he did not touch her. There was no consummation of the marriage until after the Lord Jesus was born. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 14, we read about Lot's sons-in-law. Lot's daughters were never really married. They were betrothed to those men. But in their custom, a betrothal is as good as a marriage. At the point of betrothal, the groom comes to see his bride. The bride at this time is between 12 and 14. She's a small girl. But because God did not want promiscuity amongst the Jews, he put it as an ordinance that when a girl is between the ages of 12 and 14, basically when the girl has entered into puberty, and her hormones will begin to drive wild, she must be betrothed. She must have a man speaking for her so that she does not go about and be promiscuous. At this meeting of the betrothal where the groom comes to see the bride-to-be, gifts are given. The groom gives the bride a cloth. That is the cloth that she's going to put on on her wedding day. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 3 verse 18 where the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking to the church of the Laodiceans. And was telling them that you people think that you are okay because you are wealthy and whatever. You don't know that you are naked, you are blind, you are poor. And he said, come and buy from me eye salve for your eyes, gold that you may truly be rich, and white cloth that your nakedness may be covered. That cloth is called the robe of righteousness. When we come to Christ, we are given the robe of righteousness to put on by the Lord Jesus Christ. That robe of righteousness, we must keep it clean. We must keep it pure until the day of marriage. It's something that is given to us to keep. You see, when this girl is given this cloth, it becomes a constant reminder to her that she is betrothed to a husband. The cloth is what she's going to wear for her wedding. And she's now going to have to do the design for the cloth, do engravings the way she wants it. The cloth is given to her plain, but she must now do works on top of the cloth. And that is what she's going to put on on the day of her wedding. It is the same with the Christian. When we are born again, we are given this white robe by the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the robe of righteousness. On this robe of righteousness, we now do works. These are the designs, the engraving, the way we want to look on the day of the wedding. Remembering that we must keep the cloth clean. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, all those who have the hope of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ purify themselves. So we must remain pure. The Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 27, one of the things about those who say they want to practice pure religion is that they must keep themselves unspotted 
in this world. God has kept us in this world, but he says we are not of this world. He does not want us to be isolated from the world, but he wants us insulated from the world, from sin, and from iniquity. So it is incumbent on us, having been given the robe of righteousness, to begin to walk this robe. So the works we are doing, don't forget, we have repented from dead works. So the good works that we are doing are the embroidery on the white cloth that the Lord is giving to us. So on the day of the wedding, when we don our wedding dress, there will be all manner of glitterings and shinings and all manner of things. Don't forget that we've spoken about rewards. We're going to put on what we call crowns. They'll be like tiaras with gemstones all over. People will be shining. The bride of Christ will be decked, ready for her groom. And then there's the wedding feast itself. The wedding feast lasts seven days. John 2, 1 to 12 tells us the wedding at Cana. It was a seven-day wedding. They normally buy the wine because the village is shut down for that wedding. So they get everything ready. But by the second, third day, the wine begins to ferment. So that by the seventh day, the wine is completely gone. And not many people want to drink. So that was why when they came to tell the Lord Jesus Christ that wine was finished. And he said to the servants to go and bring water. And to take the water and go and give the MC. The MC remarked and said, "Ah, what kind of wine is it that you got that you kept for seven days? And it is still sound. Never knew that it was the Lord that turned water into wine. And we are speaking of non-alcoholic wine. It becomes alcoholic when it ferments. And so the MC was wondering that this wine has not fermented. Which was why the MC exclaimed and said, How come you were able to keep this wine for seven days? And it is not fermented. In Christianity, there is going to be a seven years of the wedding. The first three and a half years of that wedding, which is going to happen in heaven, will be when rewards are given. So our garments are looked at, our works are looked at, and rewards are given according to our works. So there are people who don crowns with gemstones and other things. People will be shining bright. Some people will be brilliant and all manner of things will be happening in the first three and a half years in heaven when these rewards are being given. Oh, some people will be regretting because they will see what they should have done that they did not do and so on and so forth. There will be a lot of regret. There will be a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, oh, I should have done better. There are those who will not even have anything, but because they're in heaven, they are still okay. But on the earth, those same three and a half years on the earth, there will be tribulation taking place last seven years will be the dispensation of the Jews on the earth. If you were not born again before the start of those seven years, there's no opportunity for you to get born again again. The only people who have an opportunity of getting born again are the Jews. And what is interesting about the Jews who will be born again is that their numbers already known. 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, excluding the tribe of Dan. It's not mentioned in the book of Revelation. This 144,000 are going to enter into heaven named. Some beheaded, some hands cut off, some people, their eyes plucked out, feet gone, because they confessed Christ and the Antichrist slaughtered them. They will now come at the end of the first three and a half years. Towards that end, two witnesses are going to be released by God. We believe the two witnesses to be Elijah and Enoch. The reason why we believe that is because these are the only two human beings who are in heaven right now who have not tasted death. Some have argued that it will be Elijah and Moses, but Moses has died. So Elijah and Enoch are released and sent, and they are the ones who will now be doing the preaching to the Jews. At that time, the Antichrist will grab these two witnesses because the world will be tired of hearing them preaching about Christ and telling people to come to Christ. 
they'll be cornered at some point in time and killed. And their bodies will be left. And the whole world will see their bodies. Today, we can understand why it will happen. We have 24-hour television. We have internet, even at this rudimentary level, where we can see things live on internet. All you have to do is people are just carrying their cameras. They go onto Instagram, go onto Facebook, and they are showing things live. Technology would have been far more advanced by that time. And the whole world will see those two. After three days, those two will just suddenly get up. They were killed. They will just get up, dust their bodies, and they are lifted. The moment they are lifted to heaven, the greater tribulation begins on the earth. That's another three and a half years of extreme tribulation where you cannot buy anything without a number. You cannot do anything on the earth. Once that greater tribulation now begins here on the earth, up in heaven, a wedding is taking place. The wedding of the Lamb to the church. Because at that time, all the 144,000 Jews have come in. The Gentile believers have come in. And then they all come together to form the church and they get married. It's at that point in time that you will have the wedding of Christ and the church. Now, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 to 13, the Bible tells us about the ten virgins. Talked about five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. And it mentions to us that the five wise virgins took extra oil along with their lamps. The foolish ones just took only their lamps without extra oil. And they were waiting for the groom to come. They all slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. The bridegroom cometh. And quickly, everybody trimmed their lamps. They removed all the suit that had gathered there. They trimmed their lamps, getting ready to meet with the groom. Then the foolish ones who did not have extra oil, because you see, as the week is burning, it's reducing. So by the time the announcement of the bridegroom is coming, is made, the week of the foolish virgins is almost gone. And they needed to have oil to keep the week supple. Because as they were trimming their lamps, they had reduced the wick to the point that you needed to have oil to make the wick to burn. So at that point, they approached the wise virgin. The wise virgin says, no, we don't have enough oil, even for ourselves. So you better go and look for where you're going to get oil to buy. So that when the groom comes, you can be part of the procession. Now, I don't know how they were going to get oil. Because the oil is significant of the Holy Spirit. When the bridegroom comes, it's the Holy Spirit that will take the church away. So... Where are you going to find oil? All the time they should have used in gathering. All the time people would have used in having fellowship and relationship with the Holy Spirit and knowing Him. They refused to do that. They decided that they wanted to do something for themselves and they began to live as they liked. Now, when the time for rapture comes, you now see a scampering. Oh, they are rapturing people. It will be too late. And that's the message of the parable of the ten virgins. Those who are wise will walk continually with the Holy Spirit. Those who are foolish are going to think that they can get by by paying tithe. They can get by by going to a building called church. They can get by by carrying pastor's Bible, by pastor laying hands on them. Even the pastor himself is not sure. In Matthew chapter 22, the Lord told the parable of the wedding where this wealthy man had prepared a wedding and had invited his guests. And when the wedding was ready, he called his guests to come. But many of them had excuses. Oh, we want to go and check this land. We want to go and check property. We want to go and check land. Oh, I forgot to tell you. I'm getting married on that day as well. And all kinds of excuses were given. And the man was angry because he had already prepared the place. So he said, you know what? Go to the streets and bring people. So they went and brought undesirables. That parable was speaking about the Jews that were first called. And the Jews refused to accept the call. And now they call the Gentiles. And we, the Gentiles, have responded to that call. And he's now saying to us that we should come in. So having come in now, the Bible says he now came to inspect. And in the course of inspection, he found the guy who was not putting on his wedding dress and said, Friend, how do you get in here telling us 
that you will not be able to dodge in. Everybody will be inspected. Everything will be inspected. Now, I want to read Revelation chapter 21 from verse 9 to verse 21. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Can you imagine a city? It's called the bride. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper and the city was pure gold, like crystal glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So we see a description here. But this description is of a city. And yet the Bible tells us something, because we have to understand what is going on here. In First Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 9, the Bible says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are that city. The Christians are that city coming out from heaven. The Christians become the heavenly Jerusalem. That is why the church of God is Zion. It's not this physical Israel. No, it's spiritual Israel. In verse 9 of First Peter chapter 2, the Bible says, But you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, the church, both Jews and Gentiles, they now become a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is about the Gentiles. In verse 10 it says, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So this is what will happen. All those gifts, that was the beauty that that city had. Because everybody in that city had one reward or the other, something for their garments. And so by the time they put it on and you had everything put together, you saw a beautiful city. It's like when you are doing mosaic on a wall and you don't know what the artist is doing, but he's putting different kinds of things together. At the end of it, or when you look at it, it's such a beautiful image that he has put on the wall. And that's the kind of thing that the Bible is telling us here. That we are that city. The church is the city that is going to be married to Christ at the end of the day. The truth of the matter is this. We begin by understanding the foundational doctrines. That we have come to a kingdom of purity, of humility, of holiness, of righteousness. To a kingdom where we cannot mess up. Everything we do must be good works. The Bible says we are being called to do good works. And God has given us his grace by his spirit to do it. We cannot do the work of God except by the spirit of God. And then we must manifest 
faith towards God because it is our faith towards God that activates the Spirit of God to do His work through us. And then we have the baptisms in which we spoke about being baptized into one body. The Spirit of God puts us into the body of Christ himself. Then we talk of water baptism or Christian baptism where we identify with the Father, with the Son and with the Holy Ghost. And we make a commitment by that baptism that we are going to listen to whatever they say and we are going to do everything they ask us to do. It's a commitment. Then we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit where we are given the grace by the Spirit of God to serve. Without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ told the apostles, said, tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Don't do anything. You can't do anything until the Spirit of God comes. Because you cannot serve God acceptably except by the Spirit of God. Anybody who is serving God outside of the Spirit of God is doing his work in the flesh. And any work that is done in the flesh is an abomination before God. And then we talked about the baptism of suffering, baptism of fire, where we are purified, we are purged continually and then presented to God again for more work. The Lord Jesus Christ used the expression in John 15 of pruning for more fruitfulness. So we go through this process of purging, renewal, purification, presentation for another work. Then we are called in again. We are not purged again afresh until we get to perfection. Then there's the doctrine of the laying of hands. You just don't go to anybody to say, lay hands on me. Hands are laid on you by people that you have relationship with. If you have a pastor, is your spiritual authority as it were, he can lay hands on you and pray for you. He doesn't have to, but he can. For healing purposes, for pronouncing a blessing on you, for ordination where it is essential. Then there's the doctrine of resurrection of the dead. It tells us that after you have done this work and everything, you will still die. Because of sin on the body, we will die. But the soul and the spirit does not die. It goes to heaven. At the end of the age, the soul and the spirit will be reunited with the body. But this body will take on a different shape. It will be a body that can live in heaven. A body that can endure the joy of eternity. A body that is needed in heaven without having to require food to be eaten. A body that will not have blood, but the life of God will sustain it. Even those who died outside of Christ, their own bodies too will be given to them at the appropriate time. But their body is such that it will be able to withstand the heat of hell. It will not disintegrate. But they will feel the pain. And they will have that pain forever. Worms will be passing through the body. They will feel the pain of the worms. But the body will not disintegrate. It will be a resurrected body for the purpose of punishment and for the purpose of reward. The kind of rewards that God wants to give to us. If they give it to us now, this body will disintegrate. It cannot absorb that kind of joy that is coming. There's a kind of joy that you have. People even faint. And then, after the resurrection of the dead, there is the eternal judgment. Christians have their judgment. The unbelievers have their judgment. The essence of all of this is for Christians to understand that there is an end game. The end game is not here on the earth. So stop praying for car. Stop praying for house. Stop praying for those things. Those things are resources that God will give to us. Yes, we can ask for them if the Lord says, ask for these things. Because we need them as a resource here on earth. Not because we want it as a status symbol. They are resources that we use to do the work of God. And if they are necessary, God will provide them for you. If they are not necessary, you don't need to have them. What your focus should be is that, Lord, when I leave the earth and I come to be with you, let my works speak that I glorified you in all that I did on the earth. That I did not glorify myself. I did not do things for myself. I did things for you. It is the basis of our working and serving for the glory of God that we get the rewards that we get. We spoke about inheritance, mansions, and we spoke about crowns. For those who die outside of Christ, nothing is going to happen. After the seven years of feasting and everything, then Christ will ride upon his horse. And all the believers who have been married to him will also mount on their horses and will come down to the earth. 
Because at the end of the seven years in heaven and on earth, the Antichrist would have marshaled a massive army to march against the city of Jerusalem, which is God's capital. So at that point, the whole army of Christ will come. It's not a kind of war of weapons, no. The Bible says that a sword is coming out of his mouth. By the uttering of his word, he will destroy the Antichrist. He will destroy the armies of the Antichrist. We also, riding along with him, will speak the word. And those things will be destroyed. I think Psalm 149 talks about the word of our mouth bringing vengeance upon those who have rebelled against the law. And at that point in time, the church comes to dwell on the earth with Christ, where Christ will reign over the whole earth for a period of 1,000 years. That 1,000 years, nobody will die. Nobody will feel pain. Lions, animals, and human beings will live together in peace. Lions will not tear any animal. Lions will not tear any human being. Snakes will not bite anybody. They will not do anything to anybody. Nobody will die for a period of 1,000 years. The church will be there, reigning. People, depending on what you depending on what you have done, the Lord will give you a territory as a Christian to govern. But it's not for sure. You are governing on behalf of Christ, the head. And so, in the course of all of that, people will enjoy 1,000 years of peace. Now, why are they enjoying 1,000 years of peace? Because Satan would have been put in a bottomless pit. At the end of 1,000 years, Satan is now brought out. He's released again. At that point in time, the church will return and Satan will come back to the earth and will actually deceive people who witnessed 1,000 years of peaceful reign. I used to wonder how that is possible. But when I looked at the events in America and I look at the events around the world, I can see how easy it is to deceive people. No wonder the Lord Jesus Christ said that. Except those days are shortened. Even the very elect would be deceived. You can see how Christians are being deceived. Even pastors are being deceived by all kinds of statements. The bottom line is, if you're a child of God, you better hold on to your faith. Hold on to God. Hold firmly on to God. Serve Him. Don't joke with it. Others may be joking. You make sure you don't joke. Because now you know it's not something to joke about. The people who are joking, if you follow them, one day they will realize their mistake and they will change. By that time, you would have gone off course and you will not be there to do any replacement. So please don't joke with it. If you are listening to me and you think that church people are just joking, well, my prayer is that you will not see it as such. My prayer is that God will open your eyes, will open your heart so that you can see that this is a serious matter, that there is a life to be lived after here. And it's a life forever. Eternity is not 1,000 years. Eternity is not 1 million years. Eternity is simply put eternity. And there's nobody that lives for eternity with the things that is acquired on the earth here. Nobody. If you go to any burial, check, open the coffin. Whatever in the coffin is all that is in the ground. The spirit and the soul left that day the eyes shut in death. So if you like, keep the body for one year or for 10 years. All you are doing on that day of burial is you are just putting a remain inside the ground. The real person the spirit and the soul has gone to wherever I should go to. Those who are going to be with God have go gone to be with him. Those who will go to hell have gone to hell. And that is not Gehenna. That is just Hades where the dead are kept. Because the Bible says that at the end, that Hades himself will first of all vomit everybody that he has keeping. And then he himself will be thrown into Gehenna. And then all those people whom he has been keeping will also be likewise thrown into Gehenna. It will be foolish of you to have heard all these things and not sit back and reason and say, if there is something behind this thing. Then I need to know. Don't take my word for it. Just pray. If you, Even if you say you're an atheist, say, if there is a God, show yourself, prove yourself. He will prove himself to you. You don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? No problem. Just say, Lord, if there is a God anywhere, show me, prove to me. He will prove to you. If you really want to know. But it's not just your knowing. 
It is what you do with it. And I can tell you this. God will prove to you that he exists and that Jesus Christ is his son. And when he has proven that to you, what you need to do is go to a quiet corner and repent of your sin. Tell him I'm a sinner. Now you have shown me. I really am convinced that I'm a sinner. I need your salvation. Come and save my soul. Come and make me whole again. Take me as one of your own and help me to walk with you. He will answer you. He helped me. He has helped many others and he's going to help you also. God bless you.